Good morning, church. I, I come to you this morning with something on my heart that I need to confess to you. I have a vice in my life. It's a habit that I cultivate, cultivated growing up in the United States, and it has followed me here to Ireland. I'm addicted to ice. Now, before, let me make something clear. I'm not talking about like an illegal street name for some kind of drug. No, I'm, I'm talking about literal frozen water. I love ice. Uh, in the United States, most fast food establishments would allow you to fill up your own drinks. And so whenever we ate there, I had a system for how much ice I would put in my drink. It had to be three quarters of the way filled up to the top with ice. I was so adamant about this um, ice-to-drink ratio that I even explained the system to my wife and my sons so that if they ever uh, you know, filled up my drink for me, I'd have the right amount of ice. <clears throat> I put ice in almost every drink. I even put ice in my milk on occasion. Some of you are like, ugh, but no, it's true. One of my biggest pet peeves is when we go to a restaurant or a fast food place and they don't give me enough ice in my drink. I'll admit. I have a problem. And then we moved to Ireland, where ice doesn't seem to be as much of a priority as it was in the US. When you get a drink here, you're lucky if you get one or two ice cubes in your drink, let alone a, a cup three quarters of the way filled up with ice. Most of the time, the drinks here don't even have ice in them. I went to the cinema the other day and I ordered a Coke, and it was just kind of cool, no ice. At our home here in Ireland, our freezer is too small to fit to eight to 10 ice trays that I would require for my daily allotment of ice. So how do I respond? Like a true addict, I bought a standalone automatic ice maker. It's true. I have a problem, but it all comes down to this. I can't stand lukewarm drinks. I would prefer that the drinks be either hot, cold, like, uh, hot or ice cold. On a cold and rainy day, give me a, a good hot cup of Bari's Gold Blend with just the right amount of milk and sugar in it, and I'm in heaven. Or on a hot day, give me an ice-cold water or a fizzy drink with just the right amount of ice in it, and I'll be your best friend forever. But I don't feel like I'm alone in this struggle. When you're hosting people for dinner and you ask them what they would want to drink, wouldn't most people say that they'd either like a hot cup of tea or coffee or an ice-cold drink? I mean, who would say, can you give me a lukewarm cup of tea? Can I have a, a room-temperature cup of milk, please? No. There's something nauseating about a lukewarm drink, isn't there? It's not good for anything. It doesn't refresh you on a hot day, and it doesn't warm you on a, cold, on a cool day. It's useless. Now, as we read the letter to the church in Laodicea, I see that I'm in good company. Jesus doesn't like lukewarm either. He wants the church in Laodicea to be either hot or cold. But because they're lukewarm, Jesus is about, is about to spit them out of his mouth. Their lukewarm Christianity and their spiritual complacency are nauseating to Jesus. The church in Laodicea, and admittedly, some of the church in the world today is filled with people who aren't fully devoted followers of Christ. They're all show and no substance. The world uses terms like this to describe so-called Christians that uh, 
aren't really fully invested in following Jesus. I've heard casual Christians. I've heard nominal Catholics. I've heard backslidden Baptists. I've even heard the term pew potatoes. These lukewarm Christians put on a good show, but there's no real substance behind their actions. Jesus warns that if these nominal Christians continue in their lukewarmness, he is going to spit them out of his mouth. I saw a quote the other day in an article that said, the single greatest cause of atheism today are Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, but deny him by their lifestyle. This was just as true back in the time of Laodicea as it is today. The letter was written specifically for the church in Laodicea, but it is also a dire warning for the church of today. Do you ever feel like you're just going through the motions of your walk with Christ? Do you ever feel unmotivated, selfish, or self-satisfied? Do you ever find yourself going throughout your week with very little thought of God? If you ever had any of these thoughts or feelings, there's a lot for you in this letter. Let's take a deeper look. First, let's talk a little bit about the background and the history of Laodicea. The city of Laodicea was founded in the middle of the third century B.C., the Greek king Antiochus II named the city after his wife, Laodice. It was the wealthiest of the seven cities mentioned in Revelation. Laodicea was located at the intersection of three well-traveled trade roads, and it quickly became a prominent center for banking and industry. The city was well known for, obviously, its banks, uh, its manufacturer of a rare black wool, and a medical school that produced salve. This city was so wealthy that was, when it was destroyed by an earthquake in AD 17, the same earthquake that Parak mentioned last week, it refused to receive financial aid from Rome and rebuilt the entire city from their own financial reserves. The city was very proud of that accomplishment. Laodicea did have a problem, though. It had a poor water supply. It had no direct access to the cold water coming from the mountains, and it had no access to the hot water coming from a nearby mineral hot springs in the town of Hierapolis. So they built a 10-kilometer-long aqueduct to bring the hot springs water to their town. Not only was the water full of mineral sediment, but by the time it reached the city, it was lukewarm and didn't have the refreshing qualities of cold water or the useful therapeutic value of hot water. The city's water supply was well known in the area for being disgusting and lukewarm. Unless this city had invented a way to make ice, there's no way I could have lived there. Let's dig into the verses. The letter uh, to the church starts by identifying who is speaking. Jesus is identified as the amen, the faithful and true witness. The word amen signals an acknowledgement of something true and binding. Christ was true and faithful, but by contrast, the Laodiceans were not. While they were rich and powerful, they were not faithful and true. Then Jesus is described as the beginning of God's creation in the ESV. I want to stop here and make sure we address this verse because it could be misunderstood or misconstrued as heresy. As we know, Jesus was with the Father before all creation, and creation was accomplished through Jesus. 
So this verse is not implying that Jesus was God's first creation. What this verse really means is that Jesus is the source of creation here rather than its first sample. Then the letter wastes no time in getting to its rebuke. There is nothing to commend about this Laodicean church. And of the seven letters to the churches, this is the first letter to leave out any positive trait whatsoever. In verses 15 and 16, Jesus says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. This allusion to the Laodicean water supply is a fitting metaphor for the people of this church. According to Jesus, the people of this church were neither hot or cold. Instead, they were merely lukewarm and as bland as the water that came into the city. I used to believe that this verse meant that Christ would rather have people without faith at all, cold, or believers who were on fire for Jesus, hot, because he didn't like believers who were in between, right? Lukewarm. But when you think about it, why would Jesus want any believer to be cold or lukewarm or against him? No, hot and cold are both positive traits in this letter. The ancient uh, culture reading this letter would have no idea what being on fire for Jesus meant. That's a modern term. Instead, what is meant here is that Jesus wished that the church was useful and had either cold, refreshing purity or hot, therapeutic value, but they had neither. They were lukewarm. The church, like the water supply, had become distasteful, unusable, repugnant. The believers at Laodicea didn't take a stand for anything. Their indifference and complacency had led to idleness. By neglecting to do anything for Christ, the church had become hardened and self-satisfied. Jesus calling for the church to be either hot and cold in this letter meant being useful and active in their service of Christ. In John 15, 8, Jesus says, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Jesus wanted them to produce good spiritual fruit, but they were producing nothing of value. As a result of their spiritual complacency and their uselessness, Jesus says in verse 16, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. The water brought in via the aqueduct in the town of Laodicea from the nearby hot springs was impure, filled with sediment, and was lukewarm. The water had a reputation in the area for making the inhabitants of the, air of the uh, city sick. The church in Laodicea had the same effect on Jesus, and they were about to be spewed from his mouth. This is a vivid and horrifying picture of impending judgment. Jesus detests their attitude of compromise and their complacency about spiritual matters. With such a condition, he must deal harshly. To be a Christian means to be useful to Christ. I'll say that again if you're taking notes. To be a Christian means to be useful to Christ. In verse 17, Christ makes it clear that their being lukewarm spiritually was evidenced by their being content with their material possessions and their being unaware of their spiritual poverty. 
the Laodiceans say that they're rich, that they have acquired wealth and they don't need anything. But Jesus tells them in verse 17 that they're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Then Christ uses specific attributes that Laodicea would have been proud of and says that they are worth nothing. First, he says in verse 18, you think you are rich. You see, Laodicea was known for their wealth and their banks. But Jesus tells them to buy gold from him, which has been refined by fire. Here he means spiritual riches or treasures in heaven rather than material goods and wealth. Then he counsels them to acquire white clothes to wear to cover their nakedness. Here he is contrasting their popular black wool, which was one of their best exports, with the white clothing that symbolizes the holiness and righteousness of God. Then he says, and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Laodicea was well known for their healing eye salve, which was produced there. But here Jesus is contrasting their spiritual blindness and saying that God's symbolic salve will allow them to see and understand spiritual matters. With these verses, Christ is showing the Laodiceans that true value is not in their material possessions or even their accomplishments, but rather in a right relationship with God. Their possessions, their wealth, their prosperous industry held no value at all compared to the everlasting future of Christ's kingdom. The Laodiceans had allowed what they could buy and own to become more valuable than what is unseen and eternal. Wealth, comfort, and ease can sometimes make people feel confident, self-satisfied, and complacent. It doesn't matter how much money you have or how many items you possess if you don't have a deep relationship with God. Instead of centering their life around comfort and luxury, they should have been finding their true riches in Jesus. Now, as we transition into verse 19, I want you all to notice that even in this harsh rebuke for the Laodicean church, there is still love and care for his people. Christ says, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Some translations say, be zealous and repent. There was a second chance for the church. Christ still loves them, and he wants them to repent and turn from their ways. Christ's rebuke and discipline came because of his immense love for his church. While Christ will spit out of his mouth those who disobey, he will discipline those he loves. Then Christ says something astounding. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. Now, this verse should not be understood as an evangelistic invitation. Jesus is talking to Christians within the church of Laodicea. If not actual Christians, and certainly so-called Christians who identify as members of the church but may not be actual Christians, this appeal from Jesus to enter with them and eat was an appeal for deeper spiritual fellowship. In the ancient world, there was no deeper intimacy than to eat with someone. Here, Christ is, says he is standing at the door and knocking. With Christ on the outside, there can be no fellowship. But with Christ on the inside, there is intimate 
fellowship. This is also a foreshadowing of the kind of of, uh, fellowship that will exist in the coming kingdom. How cool is that? What Christ is getting at here is that the church needed to repent of its complacency and then return to true fellowship with Him. Then to start to conclude the letter, in verse 21, Christ says, The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my Father on His throne. Just as believers invite Christ to make His home with them in this life, so the Lord will invite anyone who conquers or endures to the end to share His throne in the coming kingdom. This promise is certain because Christ won that right for believers through His own victory on the cross. Christ became victorious over sin and death when He rose from the dead, and then He sat with His Father on His throne. And as believers, when we endure to the end, we get to share this privilege with Christ as heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. But if we remain in a lukewarm state, we will be spewed from God's mouth. Now, is it possible for someone to play church all their life and not actually be saved? I believe that this passage agrees with that. As the American pastor and author Greg Laurie once wrote, what a heartbreak it would be to live an almost Christian life than almost get into heaven. There are marks that identify true Christians. One is their fruit, their usefulness. The other is their desire to seek repentance when needed. Then the letter ends in the same manner as the rest of the letters ended with these words. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Each church is admonished to listen to the words written to them and take them to heart. Even though these words were written to the church in Laodicea, there are admonitions and encouragements that transcend these historical churches and speak to all churches over all generations, including Galway City Baptist Church. So, let's talk about application. How can we apply these verses to our lives today? Today I have three do's and a don't to share with you for application. So if you're taking notes, my first application point is this. Do examine your spiritual state. One of the main problems of Laodicea is their spiritual blindness. They couldn't even see their own poor spiritual condition. Taking the time to examine your own spiritual state carefully and on a regular basis will help you to make sure you're growing in the right direction. Is the way you're living your life line up with what you believe? Are you just speaking Christianese and doing churchy things? Or are you really showing your fruit by the way you live your life. Go even further and take a closer look at your prayer life, your Bible study, your love for the church and other believers, your gospel witness, and how you respond to sin in your own life. For instance, do you repent when there's a known sin in your life, or do you ignore it and let it fester? There are, these are uh, good indicators of your spiritual growth. If any of these are lacking, it might be a good time to give it attention, make adjustments, and then ask God to help you continue to grow. So, my first one was do examine your spiritual state. My second point is this. It's a longer one. I'll say it twice. Do be aware of the dangers of physical wealth 
and spiritual poverty. Do be aware of the dangers of physical wealth and spiritual poverty. Prayerlessness or dry devotional times often stem from a lack of sense of need before God. I, I don't know about you, but when I'm in trouble, I'm always praying, God, I can't do this without you. Help me get through this, right? But when I'm doing well, it's easier for me to forget to go to God in prayer. Our material abundance and our ease of life can sometimes be a source of spiritual poverty. Like Laodicea, maybe we have everything we need, and we don't feel like we need to depend on God for our daily bread. Or maybe like Laodicea, we're complacent about our spiritual duties to the suffering and the lost around us. Maybe we're looking inward too much, and we need to be more aware of the people around us who need help, who need direction, and who need love and care from Christians like us. So to review... Do examine your spiritual state. Do be aware of the dangers of physical wealth and spiritual poverty. And my third application point is this. Do be zealous and repent. In verse 19, the solution given by Christ to the church in Laodicea was to repent and be zealous. First, recognize before God where you are falling short and confess that to him. Then be zealous. What does zealousness mean? It's not a word we use very often anymore. It literally means, <clears throat> excuse me, great energy or enthusiasm in pursuit of a cause or an objective. To illustrate, let's talk about steam trains. Stay with me. Steam trains. Not too many years ago, all trains in the world were steam-powered. You may think of steam as the mist that forms on your bathroom mirror or uh, the, uh, your whistling tea kettle, perhaps but it's much more powerful than that. Steam is the clear vapor that forms between hot water and the visible mist. As steam forms at 100 degrees Celsius, it expands to take up much more space than its liquid state. And this explosive expansion is what allowed these old steam trains to carry great, great amounts of weight from one destination to another. Just as steam gives power to a locomotive, so zeal gives power to a believer. The more we boil over with zeal for Christ, the more power we have for his service. Trains would have to stop periodically and refill its water supply so that it continued to produce steam using water and coal. Like those trains, fill yourself up with the knowledge of Christ and drink in his greatness. Then let that knowledge push you forward like a great steam locomotive. So let's recap. The, the three do's that I've had so far are do examine your spiritual state, do be aware of the dangers of physical wealth and spiritual poverty, and do be zealous and repent. My third point is a don't. Don't be a halfway Christian. There is nothing more disgusting than a half-hearted, in-name-only Christian. Don't settle for following God halfway. Pray that Christ will fire up your faith and get you into the action. Ask him to show you what he's doing around you and then join that. Luke, lukewarmness is only cured by drinking in the greatness of the person of Christ. It would do us all well to give ourselves a daily boost of the knowledge of him. And how do we do that? 
Read God's word daily. The more you bask yourself in the greatness of Christ, his beauty, his attributes, his glory, and his power as the source of all creation, how could you be indifferent or complacent about living your life as a fervent and zealous Christian? It's impossible to see Christ as he really is and be lukewarm about him. I want to say that again. It's impossible to see Christ as he really is and be lukewarm about him. Make sure that you have fully surrendered your life to Christ and that you have given him your whole heart. Don't settle for lukewarm Christianity. To conclude today, I want to talk about armadillos. Stick with me again. It'll make sense in a minute. In the United States, there are some 30 to 50 million armadillos that live in the wild. Now, if you don't know what they are, here's the picture on the screen. Um, they are closely related to anteaters, and they can range in size from six inches to five feet long. They are known for their leathery uh, armor. In fact, armadillo is actually Spanish for little armored one. But unfortunately, of those 30 to 50 million armadillos that live in the U.S., approximately a quarter to a half million of them will become roadkill. The sight of their flattened carcasses, <laughs> sorry for the graphic picture, uh, the, the sight of their flattened carcasses is quite commonplace on the roadways of the American Southwest. Even with its natural defenses of thick, leathery-like armor skin, the armadillo learns consistently a little too late that the middle of the road is not the safest place to be. Now, what about you? Oh, actually, wait, hold on. Before I say that, I, I got to tell you this. Um, this is so common that they've actually nicknamed flattened armadillos on the road a hillbilly speed bump. Isn't that funny? Anyway, what about you? Have you been duped into thinking that the middle of the road is the safest place to be? The world says, don't commit. Don't take a stand. And above all, don't take the risk of offending anybody. Isn't that the message that mainstream society is, is spreading today? So we often camp out in the middle of the road, only to find out a little too late that we've made a hillbilly speed bump of ourselves. This is what happened to the church in Laodicea, and it can happen just as easily to us. When it comes to your Christian walk, don't settle for middle of the road. Be either therapeutically hot or refreshingly cold, but don't settle for lukewarm. I'll leave you today with a quote from Francis Chan from his book, Crazy Love. He says, God wants all or nothing. The thought of a person calling himself a Christian without being a devoted follower of Christ is absurd. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, help us to not settle for a lukewarm relationship with you. Show us where we are tepid in our lives and change us to make us useful to you. Give us the strength and the courage to be a fully devoted follower of you without compromise or complacency or self-sufficiency. Remind us to drink in your greatness so that we can be full of zeal in our spiritual life. Don't let us settle for middle of the road. You are worthy of everything we can give you. 
You alone are God. We love you and desire to serve you with all of our life. In Jesus' name, amen.